All right, good morning, everyone. All right, welcome back to our study of the House Toffel text, uh, House Table, rough translation, but Household Code text. We've been spending the past few weeks looking at the doctrine of vocation. That's the language that is uh, short form for this rather large nexus of texts and teachings. And, of course, when we think of this in terms of the Latin vocatio, this is a divine call, and these are stations in life into which God places us. We've been talking about the six core vocations, and remember, vocation isn't something like you're an accountant, and thus God has called you to be an accountant, and you can't possibly change your career, That's not what we're thinking of when we think of vocation. We're thinking of a divine calling that once God gives it to you, it doesn't, in a sense, it doesn't ever get revoked. These six core callings being uh, three pairs. So you have husband and wife, parents and children. And then you have the language of masters and slaves, which roughly translates to us as employers and employees. And so these six core vocations, and where do, where do these come from? From the mind of Lutheran theologians? No. Uh, from Ephesians chapter 5, where we spent significant time. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, where we spent significant time. And then today, I know last week we barely got into it, but today we'll be going to Titus chapter 2. Before we get into the study proper, let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, as we go into chapter 2, and this is going to be a bit of overlap, a bit of review, but I think it's worthwhile, not only because we can't ever know it well enough, but also because we have some new faces here, and so only fair to bring everybody up to speed on Titus chapter 2. If uh, you don't have a Bible with you or a Bible that you can turn on, then we have Bibles up here on the side, and the room has been carefully designed so that you can slip up on the sides and grab Bibles, and you won't be on camera, so you can make it just fine. All right, in Titus chapter 2, again, this is a letter written by St. Paul to a young pastor, and the young pastor is functioning in a supervising kind of role. It's his job to oversee the teaching of multiple churches and to ordain, that would be our language in particular, set under orders, men as pastors who fit the qualifications that St. Paul himself lays out. And so if you're just looking at Titus and you just flip back to chapter 1, you're going to see his greeting, 
course, all of this predicated upon Christ Jesus, our Savior, and the gospel. And very quickly in chapter 1, at verse 5, you see the qualifications for elders. Elders is is a biblical term for pastors. So what you see in the book of Acts, in the book of Peter, and elsewhere, is that there are three terms that are used for the same office. The language of overseer or bishop, that's one word. The language of shepherd, that's another, which of course translates into the Latin and then into the English as pastor. And then the other is elder. Those three words are used interchangeably for the office. Now, as the history of the church moves along, there is of human origin, de jure humano, not of divine origin, de jure divino, there is a hierarchy that takes place, such that bishop then gets reserved for a pastor who oversees other pastors. But important for us to note that that isn't a biblical distinction, that that hierarchy doesn't come from God. It simply develops in the life of the church. We have a very similar thing, even here in the 21st century in the LCMS, we just call it by different names. Not a bishop who has oversight over pastors, but a district president. So, same kind of structure, but the district president, he, he derives his authority not from God, but from man. In our case, we elect him to this role of oversight, but he has no distinction in office from God. It's one office that we all hold. All right, so the qualifications of that office are laid out. And sometimes for uh, Lutherans, we get this confused because the church can create any office it wants. God creates one office through Christ, the office of the holy ministry, this office of overseer, pastor, and elder. But then the church is free as a congregation to create whatever other offices it wants. And so the church can create the office of congregational president. What chapter and verse of the Bible says you have to have a congregational president? There isn't one. The church in in its freedom can create the office of head elder and a board of elders, congregational president and a church council. But where in the Bible do you see it mandated that we have these things? Nowhere. So these are of human origin and they're subject to change. They're not in that sense absolutely necessary. But one thing we don't want to do, even though we have this office of elder created by the church, a wonderful office, we don't want to confuse that office that the church has created with this office that God has created. Does that make sense? All right. So these are, in fact, qualifications for elders, pastors, overseers, same thing, same office. Those are laid out for us in chapter 1, verse 5, all the way through 9. After a few additional words, 
largely warning about uh, false teachers. Then in chapter 2, Paul goes on to articulate to Titus uh, what we would call the vocations. Now, he does this in a creative way. Of course, in Ephesians and Colossians, he lays this out very simply. Uh, For example, in Ephesians, he speaks to the wives. Then he speaks to the husbands. He speaks to the children. Then he speaks to the fathers. Then he speaks to the servants or slaves. Then he speaks to the masters. It's all laid out very clearly, very textbook-like. Here, he has an artistic spin on it. He's going to introduce us to the older men and the older women, and then through the older women, he's going to introduce us to the younger women, and then from the younger women to the younger men. So it's kind of an artistic flowing here. But as you see in chapter 2, verse 1, this is Paul speaking to Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Hugia say. So, healthy would be good. Healthy doctrine. It's a different way of thinking of doctrine. When you think of the body of teaching, it needs to be healthy. Okay. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That word doctrine, again, we as Lutherans would tend to think, all right, so start at the top, describe to me the Trinity, how God is one in essence, but three in person, go down to Christology, the second person is true God and true man, not two persons, but one, and then maybe you go down from that in in regard to who is he and what did he come to do, and now you're in the doctrine of man and original sin and free will, or rather lack thereof in spiritual matters, and so on and so forth until you get to eschatology, the study of the last things. This is very frequently what we think of as Western academic Christians as doctrine. But notice what St. Paul here considers doctrine. It's instruction for the home and for these various vocations that we see. So, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men, presbytos, if you look at your study note, this is great. By virtue of age and experience, they serve as natural role models for younger men. People who reached aged 80 were regarded as remarkable. So, some of you can pat yourselves on the back. The median age of death, according to inscriptions left on the tombs of the upper classes, was 46 and a half years for men. So, elders, presbytos, were men in their 30s or 40s. We're not even at the young men yet. So if you're in your 30s or 40s, biblically speaking, these words are for you. Elders were men in their 30s or 40s, though most would not have had an exact reckoning of their age. Which sounds healthier to me. The older I get, the less I want to have an exact reckoning of my age. 
older men, presbytos, are to be sober-minded, which is probably self-explanatory, dignified, which can mean honorable, but also can mean grave or serious. Uh, Maybe in our language we'd even say like respectable. The goal of being an older man in your 30s and 40s and still acting like Peter Pan is not the biblical goal. So the goal is to be able to carry a certain weight and gravitas in your being. I mean, it's not saying we can't have fun, that kind of thing. Um, There's no prohibition against that. But it does give us room to pause, I think particularly because we as a culture have largely pushed childhood through the 30s. When I became, when I turned 40, I finally became 18. (laughs) Time to get serious about life. That's our culture. And it's pushing the marriage age into the 30s because, you know, you've got to go to college. And then once you're out of college, you've got to get a job. And then once you get a job, you've got to get a house. And then once you've got a house, well, then maybe you can get married. That's going to put you in your 30s, usually late 30s. And, you know, Certain things happen when you become a presbytos, or as we're going to see, a presbytidos, which is the older woman, and that is you get a little set in your ways. You get a little calcified in who you are and how you like things. And that contributes to the divorce rate being as high as it is, because you've got two people who have lived into their late 30s, set in their ways, getting together and saying, let's try to make this work. Not a great idea. We're much more flexible when we're younger, much less calcified when we're younger, and it's much easier to bend and shape shift and create a life together. I don't want to go off on this tangent, but just for a moment, uh, our American society expectation for kids, for young people, and Likewise, then, almost by default, the church in America's expectation for young people is preposterous, ridiculous, and soul-destroying. You're going to hit puberty somewhere around 12, 13, 14. You need to be abstinent for the next 25 years. How's that going to work for anyone? It's not. Our culture is set up to destroy people sexually. We gasp and clutch our American-made pearls when we hear of young, arranged marriages. (gasps) How foolish. They couldn't possibly know what they're getting into. How could anyone marry them off so young? But there's at least a fighting chance there. And in fact, better than a fighting chance... There are many advantages to such a system, certainly advantages to younger marriage. And so before we sit on our high horse and look down our nose at these cultures and, oh, how barbarian, how backward-minded, we ought to take a hard look at our culture and see the fact that by the time many do get married in their 30s, they've had multiple sexual partners. Does that bode well for the future longevity of the marriage? No. The number of sexual partners correlates positively with the degree with which you're going to get a divorce. So we're setting people up 
to go into marriage as completely sexually spent and defiled, calcified in their ways, and then get married and we'll see if you can make it, which right now is basically a 50-50 shot. Not good odds. No matter their age, when people sit across the desk from me and say, okay, pastor, we have decided to get married and we'd like you to do the counseling for us. I say, all right, here's what I got for you. You're probably going to get divorced. (laughs) So you can do this your way, and that's even more likely to happen, or you can strive to do it God's way, and that's less likely to happen. And that sets the stage for a really blunt treatment of here is the job duty that God gives to husbands, that God gives to wives, that God gives to parents, that God gives to children. This is the job description. If you don't want to sign up for that, then you're dooming yourself to failure. And that means such unfashionable things as wives submit to your husbands, which is exactly where Paul starts in Ephesians, and husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church, even when she's unlovely. That's Paul's point. Okay? So I think... We have much to repent of in terms of our culture and much, much to be critical of because we have invented a world that is upside down. And then we need to poise ourselves to fight against these things in whatever degree we can. We're going completely upstream and uphill on this one. And while that's always the first half of the coin, the second half of the coin is we want to be exceedingly gracious and merciful to those who have been destroyed by our system. Those who have, who have um, found themselves devastated by being in a state of unmarried puberty for 25 years. These are people to be pitied and people to be absolved and people to be welcomed into the church. And likewise, divorcees. These are people who have been set up for failure and lo and behold have failed. And while that's no one's goal and no one's desire and we would fight for the marriage tooth and nail as long as we could, as God himself would have us do, where divorce does happen, we need to be exceedingly merciful and understanding. These are people who have been fighting upstream with every possible disadvantage wrapped around their neck and shoulders. So this gets us to the state of the church in the West in the 21st century, which is this dichotomy and paradox, to be absolutely hard as stone in terms of what it is that the Bible teaches and where the world is in error. That's one side. But the other side is to flip the switch and be completely merciful and compassionate to people who are victims of this system. Does that make sense? All right. So I just wanted to riff on that because our world is so alien from St. Paul's world, and I'm fairly well convinced that St. Paul would have a number of things to say to us today that are uh, quite different than what he said to the people of the first century, but we'll have to leave that as a matter of speculation. What the Holy Spirit has given us here is sufficient, and we should give thanks to God. So, older men, sober-minded, men in your 30s and 40s, if you're older than that, definitely. Maybe you are uber, 
uber presbytos, super old dudes. <laughs> older, men, <laughs> older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, honorable, grave, serious, self-controlled, sound, again, that's that word, healthy, healthy in faith. And I love this perspective because it takes us out of the category of right and wrong. Now, that's a vital and necessary category, but it puts it in a different light, healthy or unhealthy. Have you ever seen someone who's got the right doctrine but is unhealthy about it? So I think this gives us a different perspective, just a little different flavor to be sound in faith and that to be healthy in faith and that can uh, that is uh, bound together with sound or healthy doctrine in verse 1. So it is sound or healthy in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Hupomone, which is endurance or patience. And this is maybe the most uh, maybe the most important role that older men can play for us that in the church, and particularly young people, because young people right now with everything moving as fast as it is, are filled with anxiety, filled with doubt, filled with a sense of meaninglessness, purposelessness, I can't possibly win, and all of that leads to despair. So one of the greatest roles that a presbytos, an older man, can play is to simply show endurance, patience. It's okay. God has you. It's okay. You are baptized. This, too, will pass. This phase of your life will change. Things will get better. This idea of endurance is such a powerful idea and so underappreciated in our culture because our culture values constant and continual movement, quote-unquote progress, which usually is regress. And that is the precise recipe for anxiety and despair, to slow the cadence of life down as an older man can and say, yep, I remember that phase. I didn't have it as hard as you, but I know the Lord saw me through it and he's going to see you through it too. That's the wisdom and strength of endurance, not changing with the times, just simply being emotionally, spiritually grounded. All right, so that's Paul's treatment of older men. And, of course, we're going to see a correspondence when he gets to younger men, 20s and younger, if you can believe that. And before we move on to the presbyteros, the older women, and what Paul has to say there, let's pause, see if you have any comments or reflections on what we've covered so far. Always works better if it's a dialogue than a monologue. Good morning, Pastor Rody. Good morning, Chaplain Bell. The, uh, so Colin Powell, um, that worked for me, uh, cited a National Geographic documentary where a group of young male elephants were taken out of their herd and put in a new area without, like, the rest of their herd. And they went, the aggression went off the charts, and they started, like, killing everything around them, like hippos, oh, yeah. things they don't normally kill. And... Yeah. 
then the the researchers took a handful of pres, presbuteras, uh-huh. uh, older uh-huh. male elephants, to, to, and put them in amongst that herd, and everything calmed right down. Uh-huh. And it was just this idea of like, you know, exactly that dynamic you described. You know, just kind of either the mixture of just like chill out, or maybe like kind of a a little intimidation, like don't do that, <laughs> and that and that calm. But I thought that was just speaks to this whole how important that role is in any society of the mm-hmm. the elder to mm-hmm. to model you know what they should do and yeah. what happens when that's taken away it's a great point thank you for that that's a wonderful illustration and helps me understand why my son does what he does when i leave for a weekend you know <laughs> baby elephant goes wild <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a great it's a great point. So I think that in our in our LCMS congregations where the church has created this office of elder, not pastor, but generally speaking, older men, certainly almost always in their thirties or above, though exceptions to that would be fine. But these are men who are wise. These are men who uh, are patient. These are men who re- are regularly involved in worship and studies at faith and they in many ways ground the congregation and i know sort of that same thing of like you know the raging young elephant you know at various times in my pastorate as a particularly as a young pastor you just have this sense of well i've never experienced anything like this it's all going to fall apart we have to do something now and the elders are like or next month (laughs) or not (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I remember when something very similar happened back in the 70s. Oh, how did that get resolved? Well, it just kind of went away. You know, <laughs> so there's a, there's a great deal of that kind of wisdom that happens not only in the family, and I, you can think of yourself too in the role of like grandparent, in the role of father. Sometimes father needs to be the emotional anchor. I don't know why I said sometimes. Always <laughs> needs to be the emotional anchor anchor so when everybody else is flipping out dad's like hey it's all right we got this Um, but grandparents can provide that and then in the church and in our larger communities it's the same thing it's elders and um, you can be males an elder without having that particular title just by the way that you hold yourself carry yourself and lead by example and and word within the congregation so I yeah I commend all of that to you. It's very stabilizing, and everyone is positively affected by something. Sometimes even just your presence or your calm word that they don't even know is happening, but it's just a good place to be. So these are things that you can uh, strive for. Did I see another uh, hand come up? Yes, please. Having gone to as an older citizen, we actually continue studying. At the Saddleback uh, College Emeritus Program, uh, Professor Sinclair referenced uh, Deuteronomy 8, and uh, please, I'm ready to cor- be corrected on that. But he was saying, and I'm, I'm thinking I might be go- taking a bunny trail away from what you're referencing here, but the, what is in Deuteronomy 8 is, the, the, uh, is what I see going on in America right now, that and it has to do with the economy, uh, to some degree, that you have a pursuit of happiness within the realm of 
money, the making of money. And uh, I think we've gone off the cliff on having absolutely every child go to Harvard or Yale or Princeton and uh, making the children think they have to have these high degrees that will glean those fancy dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, it's, it's not to be for everybody. Right, yeah, thank you for that. And the pendulum may swing back as it becomes more and more lucrative to work with your hands to become an electrician or a plumber who knows what they're doing, that may end up paying much better uh, than many university degrees and will certainly pay much better than your women's study degree. <laughs> so why, why is there such a, an attack on patriarchy? Because patriarchy is the stability and the slowing, staying agent. So if you denigrate patriarchy and you denigrate men, you can do what? Change everything really fast, which is exactly what we see happening. Those two things are part and parcel. They're not accidental to each other. That's the attack on men is the desire to move everything rapidly in a different direction. Okay, on to Presbyteros, the older women. Are you ready for it? We've got to go down, just to be fair, to the footnote. You have to share the same depression as the older man. No specific age is given. Well, that's safe. But since verse 4 addresses younger women who have children, perhaps the older women are those past childbearing age. The median age of death for women was 34 years. All right. So older women probably... Uh, Maybe even late 20s, but uh, certainly early 30s and beyond. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. I love the language here. The English does the best it can, but it's the same language you find, the same root word you find in temple, uh, the temple of God, and the same language you find like in the garment that the priests would wear. So this is sacred almost, holy, reverent. In behavior. I think corresponding heavily with that idea of dignified as honorable, grave, or serious. But reverent in behavior, not slanderers. This is fun because the word slanderers is, is diabolus, which <laughs> the plural for diablos, devils. So, yeah, be holy, sacred, not slanderers, not devils, or slaves to much wine. Let's look at the footnote and see what exactly is much wine. (laughs) How many liters are we talking here? So the note I don't think says, but it says people drank wine at meals and parties and for, oh, medicinal purposes. But drinking too much would violate the spirit of self-control urged throughout Titus. All right, so you don't have a specific amount but it is something to watch, not to become a slave or a servant of much wine. Okay, so not slanderers, not using their mouth in service of the devil as many devils, but rather using their mouths to teach what is good. And so train the 
neos, the young women. So here is direct, we would say in English, mentorship. But maybe we can even be more loose than that because it doesn't need to be a structured kind of thing per se. But the role of women past the age of childbearing is to help those who are married and bearing children um, and to teach them what is good and to train them. So those of you who self-identify as presbyteras, that's the task set before you. And those of you who identify as neas, you've got young children, what you want to do then by converse is be receptive to this and understand that it's coming from a good place. And even though the presbyteras might not really understand the full pressures you're under or, they, or years may have caused them to forget or times have changed or whatever the case may be, you still want to open yourself up to the training and word of the presbyteras because they're there for you. This is part of God's design. So train the young women, verse 4, to, or, yeah, to love their husbands. In Greek, it's just, um, what is it? It's philandre, I think. I've got to look. But it's to just be um, husband lovers. It's one word. Husband lovers. Are you, anybody looking at the Greek? I don't want to take the time to go dig it up. Okay, and then um, what else? To love their husbands and their children. In Greek, it's just one word, too. It's like... I'm going to have to look that one up. Let me see what it is. Three. Hmm. Let me see here. One second. Pardon me. Bear with me while I check this out. Verse 5 of 2. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. Philandrus and Philotechnus. So I love this. Because it's not, I mean, I think it's untranslatable in English. But the point isn't to just love your husband or love your children. The point is that you embody it such that that's what you are and become. You're the husband lover. You're the child lover. It's just such a beautiful beautiful linguistic way of beautiful conceptual way of thinking of women that that's what you neas you young women are and that's what the presbyteras can train you and give you is to be the husband lover and the child lover it's just so fantastic okay then you have this language pure which is as it sounds, working at home, oik ergos, so like ergos, work, and then oik, uh, the home or domicile. As the study notes, quick to point out, doesn't mean you can't work outside the home, but this kind of goes again to what it means to be a neos. You're the one who holds the home together. Obviously, this gets shifted around a little, like if you have a stay-at-home dad and uh, mom's working out of the house or something like that. But Paul's not dealing with those circumstances, so he doesn't mention anything about them. 
here he just says, uh, yeah, home workers, workers at home, making the home a home, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. And that, of course, echoing Ephesians 5 that we've already quoted. So what's the key about submissive to their own husbands? It's that the older women are teaching the younger women to be submissive to their husbands. How do you think that goes if it's done in word but not deed? Not very well. So here it's as much by example as it is by word that older women in showing submission, reverence, whatever, respect to the husbands are modeling that, that like, hey, I don't have to be a raging feminist. It's okay. I would prefer to be a woman as God would have me be a woman. I'm not losing anything in doing this. Rather, I'm gaining because I'm gaining the honor and glory that God has given to me in this position. And so there's that modeling and that teaching that takes place. And by the way, is of infinite value because, um, and trust me, do not try this at home. About the time a husband says to his wife, you need to submit to me, the wheels have already fallen off. (laughs) So this isn't a good teaching to be received from your husband. But from an older woman who's modeling this and showing you the grace and the beauty and the goodness of living this way and that she's not at all jeopardized by it, that's a beautiful thing. And in fact, this is truly the power of marriage. If we want to use like 21st century ca- or yeah, categories into all of this language, the true power of a woman is paradoxical. It's in her grace and her submission and her quietness. Because what that does is it puts the man not in a position of this is a rival that I've got to combat and attack, but look, she's willing to do what I want. She's willing to follow my lead. And what that does to a man's heart is melts it and he starts thinking, well, I want to do what's right for her. Her power is in her submission. Whereas if she tries to take power and stand face to face with the man, how's that going to go? She's yelling. Man's going to put up with it for a little bit before in one way, shape or form. He puts the kibosh on that. But when a woman acts like a man, she forces the man to treat her like a man, and that's not going to go well. She's going to lose her power and be subjugated, and it's going to be ugly and bad instead of beautiful and good. It's going to be enforced rather than a kind of dance. So this is, again, just the beauty of what God has laid out for us in terms of the economy and ordering of the home and uh, the role of older women as they speak to, model, and train the younger women. That, of course, is one of the many things that's completely upside down about feminism. In order to have any value woman, you have to be able to fight like a man. Anybody else think that that's sexist? That's one of the fundamental tenets of feminism is to have any value, you have to be just like a man and do everything a man does. Nobody, what, nobody in our culture gets that, that that's like totally sexist. So in order to be a woman, 
You want to be everything that God has made you to be. In order to be a man, you want to be everything God has made you to be. That's the goal. The goal is to be, a, if you're a woman, the goal is to be a woman. If you're a man, the goal is to be a man, not to try to take on each other's roles, which is what feminism is teaching. I mean, as it goes full circle, it's a disaster on our society because it's teaching women to be men and men to be women. And men, part of our sinful nature after the fall is to do exactly that, which is to be effeminate, passive, not taking the lead, which I know you don't think so, but it's a very effeminate thing when, the, when dad comes home from doing as little as he possibly can at work and then pops the recliner and sits into it and does as little as he possibly can while sitting in front of the TV. It may not, that may strike us as stereotypically male. That's in fact stereotypically female and feminine. Utter passivity, no leadership whatsoever. No get up and go, no creative mojo, no involvement, no movement, just passivity and waiting for someone else to do the moving, receiving, not giving. So, yeah, ponder on that a little bit if you would. All right, we've got to, uh, we've got to truck along here. Were there any questions or comments? I know that that's kind of a unit. I may have to cut it off, but I see one hand. So if we have a hand or two, that's fine. Then we'll go on to um, the younger men. Just real quick, I I know you're running short of time, but it's interesting, and I'd like you to contrast this to where Paul says, I think it's in Corinthians, where he says, uh, men uh, love your wives and women respect your husbands. It's kind of intuitive for men to respect their wives they can do that but it's harder to love your wife uh as it as it yeah <laughs> as it is uh danger, for women danger, they danger. they no. kind of intuitively re- respect their husbands <laughs> uh but it's hard for them to love their husbands so yeah you want to contrast maybe contrast those two i don't know so I, th- I think, I mean, this is grounded in what Paul's saying and grounded in his argumentation. This is just my interpretation of where we're at today, given the disastrous circumstances we find ourselves in, is that the call to love your wives as Christ loved the church, Christ loves the church unconditionally. We learn by shadow read that she's spotted and wrinkled and impure when Christ loves her. So the very model for a husband is as God has loved and forgiven me, so I ought to love and forgive my wife unconditionally, siloed off. That's the call to love. So it doesn't matter if your wife's a feminist, you still have to love her and fulfill your biblical duties. Now, what would the woman's side of respect be like? Uh, Respect in in our culture isn't just like, oh yeah, well, I respect you. I mean, that, what does that mean? That means nothing. Respect in our culture means I'm not going to act like a man to you. I'm going to be your wife. Not a combatant. Not a challenger. I mean, if you're, if you're putting yourself in a position as a woman where you're challenging verbally or physically or even just getting up in your husband's face or space, that's not respect. That's the antithesis of respect. So that's where I would go with those two. And yeah, they're difficult calls in our culture because our culture is completely antithetical to that. You know, you need to be happy, 
That's, and that's really the, I mean, that goes for both husband and wife, but especially the husband. You need to be happy, and if she's not making you happy, you can treat her miserably or do whatever you want. Uh, and then the, the call for the women, of course, is you need to be a strong woman and empowered and don't take any crap from your husband, which is the exact opposite of respect. So our society in many ways is counter these two things. Any other, uh, any other thoughts we have? Okay, one in the back and then I had better close out. Just We don't want to miss the young men. I don't want to be accused of being imbalanced here. Yeah, well, I think the problem is, and I spoke once to a girl that was homosexual, and she said, I have to find my own truth. Mm. And I think it goes back to the vocation where it's not just a wife and a husband. It's two separate entities. They can't meld because they don't have defined roles. They're like, I'm me, I'm who I want to be. Mm, and yeah. you're you and you're who you want to be because you need your own truth. Yeah. It's all back to self-idealization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it can't work. And as a result, society falls apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's where we are. Yeah, selfishness leads to individualism, which leads to the breakdown of culture, which, of course, is like the... I mean, that's like, from a different angle, the definition of hell. There may be a lot of people there, but you're completely alone. That's, that's the feeling of hell. Yeah. Okay, we had better move on, lest I be accused here. So, uh, we, with, our, with our last few minutes here, uh, verse 6, Likewise... The neoterus, the young men, so here we're talking like 20-year-olds and teenagers, likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And of course, the battle for men at this stage is, to, is going to be self-controlled, uh, particularly with a view towards sexuality. You're swimming in your hormones at this age. And so that's like the great battle that every young man faces and that's certainly evident in other scriptures. No doubt about it, what I would put central here in this idea of self-control, to be, uh, to be looking toward marriage, saving yourself for marriage, and then even within marriage to um, be chaste, be rightly ordered within marriage so that it's not just using someone for the sake of your lust that ter- that objectifies your wife and can destroy the marriage so uh, young men need to be self-controlled whether not married or married marriage is just a different form of chastity of being chaste of being rightly ordered spiritually so be self-controlled verse 7 Show yourself, now here Paul talking to Titus, who himself is a neoterus, a younger man. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Why? Because the younger men are to follow in those good works. So in the same way that the older women are modeling to the younger women, here pastors are modeling to younger men. I don't want to make too much about that because it's occasioned by the age of Titus, but it is a dynamic, a symmetry that you see in this text, even if it might be largely unintended. 
But Titus is encouraged as a young man to be a model of good works to the other young men in his teaching to show integrity, dignity, and sound or healthy speech that cannot be condemned. With the result or so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. And that is a kind of training as young men exert themselves in the arena of life that they would speak the truth, but speak the truth in love. And speak the truth in such a way that they cannot be condemned, but that their opponents would be put to shame. So here's using that testosterone and that male, uh, what, what was it, the baby bull elephant energy into speaking and communicating the gospel and the word of Christ and defending that and doing so honorably. It's as much a battle against yourself as it is against a battle, a battle against your opponent to be self-controlled. All right, to speak with speech that cannot be condemned so that the opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. All right, and then we go on to slaves and masters, but we are at time. So we'll pick up there next week. Uh, If you could, if you remember, we have a few extras here, but try to bring a small catechism because one thing we'll do in the last section or two of this study is we'll look at the table of duties and the catechism. And of course, we've spent a lot of time on the primary vocations, but there are some extras included there. We also will have just a brief moment to look at this kingdom of the church and the kingdom of the state and what the table of duties requires us there. So we'll spend some time on Romans 13 and the question of whether or not we actually understand that text anymore uh, next week. The Lord be with you.